0: Now take your Bibles tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I appreciate you braving the weather, hopefully we'll be out of here in no time at all, that way you can get home, tuck into your nice warm sheets and wake up and brave the weather when you go to work tomorrow, amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tonight, We'll we'll begin reading in verse number 1, very unique passage of scripture and I hope that maybe... You'll learn something tonight. I'm going to talk to you on what I would consider one of the most unstudied and one of the most fearful things in Christianity or in a Christian's life. I don't know why it's such a fearful thing, but we, uh, being human beings, we are so scared of what I'm going to talk about tonight. It's uh, something that we then don't take the time and the diligence to study it out so that we have a clear understanding of everything that's going to happen. And there are so many misteachings on this subject and really just false teaching. And, and I hope that maybe we can look at this and learn something. In verse number 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved... We have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so, be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, verse four, you somewhat find that the Lord or the Bible here is not speaking of a earthly house. Now, that's the word that's used, but you see, uh, our house is not mortal. Our house is not immortal. It is just uh, just something. It's a, a piece of matter. But rather, the Bible here is talking about our body. It's talking about the earthly vessel that God has given us. And that's when it says an earthly house. It's talking about the tabernacle of our body. It goes on to say that we groan and we desire the house which God has made for us, the perfect and glorified body that he will then give unto us well, that day. Verse number 5, the Bible says, Now he that hath wrought up for the, uh, uh, us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Father, tonight I ask for your blessing upon the message. I have done my very best to study this out, understand the passage. And Lord, I do believe you helped me. Now, God, I ask not only will you have helped me in my study, but I also pray that you'd help me here in this pulpit. This is a holy calling, a calling I don't take lightly, Lord, one that I feel so unworthy to have the opportunity to share the gospel and share the word of God with these folks tonight, but Lord, I pray that you would use me. Despite my flaws and imperfections, Lord, use me. Now, God, I also pray that your spirit would be moving and working in every heart, for if The Holy Spirit does not move in our hearts and does not meet with us tonight. We will surely have met in vain. So, Father God, I pray that every person in here would tune out all the distractions and all the things in this world that can get their attention away from God's Word. I pray that the Spirit of God would block those things out and that it would draw our attention to what the Bible teaches. That way we may be able to thwart some of these false teachings and misteachings that we have learned so many times before. Lord, I pray tonight that you just bless our service, and I pray that everything be done to glorify your Son and glorify you, Lord. I pray this in your Son's precious name. Amen. Now, obviously, as we've read this passage, most of you have an idea about what we're going to talk about. We're going to be talking about the end of your life. What happens? Why are so many Christians afraid to come to that day when it will finally end at all as far as this life goes. Why are so many people worried? You see on the screens tonight, I've named the sermon, when your life has been punctuated, the punctuation at the end of your life. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in the English language, punctuation is quite, uh, quite important. See, if you don't use punctuation, you ever read a text message without punctuation? Sometimes you have trouble reading it. i tell you what, I don't really know that much about social media or anything. I'm not that involved in it. I'll tell you what's hard to read, hashtags. Some people do hashtags that are 5,000 letters long, even though you're limited to a certain amount of characters on Twitter, and there's no spaces and no punctuation. So they'll say, hashtag, I love church tonight. The preaching was mediocre, but the singing was sure great. And you have to read that with no spaces and with no punctuation. It gets quite hard at times. But punctuation is very important. You might not believe me, but I have some examples for you tonight. First of all, I want to show you this first picture. Brother JT, we'll go to our first picture here. Punctuation is quite important. Now, this is a, a October issue of Tales Magazine. I believe it's a pet magazine. Rachel Ray is a cook that's on the Food Network. She also has, hosts a daily, show, daily talk show, I believe. I want you to notice what it says there. Eat Ray Love. Now, that's a good little title. I think they were trying to be clever with her name because her name's Rachel Ray. It goes on to say that Rachel Ray finds inspiration in cooking her family and her dog. That's a very strange thing for someone to cook their family and dog and find inspiration while doing that. You understand there should have been some commas in there. Inspiration in cooking, comma, her family, comma. Then you have the rest of the sentence there, and her dog. Now, you understand, I, I hope... I hope Rachel Ray does not cook her family and dogs. She'd be running out of dogs. That's a pretty dog. I'm not sure I'd want to eat him. I'd like to pet him, but I wouldn't like to eat him. So you can see that punctuation is quite important. Go to the next one there, Brother JT. Attention, toilet only for disabled, elderly, pregnant children. That is a very small category for whom they are qualified to use that toilet. I wonder if there's bars there to help that disabled, elderly, pregnant child. I, I'm not sure. It's a short toilet, but they have the handicap bars. And so I, I, guess that's, I guess that's the way that works. Next picture there, Brother JT. Let's eat grandma. Let's eat grandma. You see the difference? Punctuation is quite important, and punctuation even saves lives, you see that there. Go on to the next one, Brother JT. Now, this one might be hard to read, and and you can even read over this one if you're not careful. All fields are closed. No trespassing violators will be prosecuted. Okay. Well, they're all closed. We can, however, trespass. We just won't be prosecuted for trespassing. All right. Next one. This is my favorite. Hunters, please use caution when hunting pedestrians using walking trails. (laughs) You see... As a hunter myself, I find the fact that they're telling you to just be careful when they're on the walking trail. You can take them out anytime. just be careful when they're on the walking trail, and you can uh, go ahead and take them out there. Uh, I find those very comical, but we all understand that there are some important issues when it comes to using punctuation and using it properly. Now, I'm not the greatest at this. In fact, I find myself misusing punctuation all the time. However, I do take things to my wife and say, Honey, make sure I don't look like a retard when I I hand you this. Make sure you get all the the punctuation right. You get the periods in the right spot if it's a question mark or whatever. And and, uh, punctuation is important. But did you know when you use a period, what does that mean? It's a complete thought. It stops. There's nothing else needs to be said, for that sentence stands alone as a complete thought. I believe it includes a noun and a verb, some type of person or thing or place that is doing an action or having action done unto it. That's the way I understand it, and I'm sure there are English teachers in here that if I'm wrong tonight, you're more than welcome to come up to me and correct me, and uh, I'll just be in the men's bathroom after church, so you'll have to make your way in there. But uh, uh, you see... Punctuation is important, but this is the truth, and you have to agree with me on this. One day, the period will be applied to the end of your life. And everything that you've done up until this point will stand as a complete work. See, there's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can take away. That's the end. What's that day going to look like? You see, there are just so many misunderstandings about that period. What's it going to be like? What's going to happen afterward? Uh, uh, There's just so many misunderstandings. So I want to talk to you about three misunderstandings about that period. First of all, I want you to notice this, the misunderstanding of our journey. The misunderstanding of our journey. Verse number one, I want you to see this. The Bible says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved... We have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. See, what amazes me is how people fall in love with this body they have. Boy, they they spend a lot of money to fix it up. They make sure they get their tanning membership. As you can tell, I've been tanning a little bit lately. I'm still pasty white, a little transparent at times. People spend so much money on getting their body just the way that they want it, when in reality, and if you study your Bible, your body is borrowed. It's a loaner. You ever had a rental car? You go and they hand you the keys, and it's kind of a cool thing, because it's not your car, it's newer than your car, you get to experience all the new things of your car, but at the end of your rental, what do you have to do? Give it back. And as much as we have trouble swallowing this peel, your body is not yours. If anything, it's a temporary vehicle. Something to get you from point A or the doctor's room or the doctor's office when you're first born all the way to the very end when you're laying in an old wooden box. It's just a vehicle. Oh, how much we emphasize this body we try making it look good and i have no problem with that i don't put much effort into my body uh uh, the bible says bodily exercise profiteth little i just stop reading right there Uh, regardless of the period or the comma i just say hey man that means i don't have to work out so it's working good for me so far uh obviously if you've ever tasted dr pepper you understand that that's straight from god you don't need a biblical revelation to understand that god had a direct hand in dr pepper and and I go ahead and get mine without ice so that I do not add anything to the 23 perfect flavors of Dr. Pepper. You see, ice adds a 24th flavor, and 23 flavors are perfect. So if you know Dr. Pepper, so I lip-lock Dr. Pepper's pretty much all the time. And if it's not a Dr. Pepper, I find myself face deep into a perfectly sweet, sweet tea with easy ice. You see, sweet tea needs ice because it comes out warm. So you need the ice off, said the warmth, but I... I don't take much pride in my body and you say, "Man, you look good." Well, thank you. Thank you. That's quite nice of you to say that. I appreciate that compliment. But this body is simply borrowed. 2nd Peter chapter 1 says this. "Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle." even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. One day you're going to give it all back. And we take so much pride in this life, and we almost it's almost like we think that we are immortal while everyone else is mortal. I'll tell you what will really wake you up to the fact that you're not immortal. Go sit in a waiting room of someone who had an accident. Brother Odell this week was a stark reminder for me. A man just falls off a ladder. Now he's in the hospital. He has stroke after stroke. Now uh, they're they're talking about him never having a vision. They're saying they don't know what's going to happen And I'm looking at my dad. I say, man, I can fall off a ladder. Hey, look, you're not exempt. The Bible talks about man's life. What is it? It is but a vapor. It is here today and is gone tomorrow. You have no guarantee you're going to make it home tonight. And your body is just a borrowed vessel which the Lord Jesus Christ has given to you. And I would say on the heels of that, you better do your best to take care of it. You know why? Because you can bring glory and honor to Christ when you take care of your body. When your body looks approachable, when it looks appealing, when it's a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ... I believe that brings honor and glory because anything, it would be a shame for us to walk around this church and just trash it out. Christ gave us this church, this beautiful building, but there would be no way that Brother John Ringle would take his a uh, and graffiti color back there and put old Johnny Football is my hero on the back. There is no way he would write that. First of all, because Johnny Football probably doesn't look very heroic right now. But <laughs> Brother Bill, that's the first time you said amen in years, brother. My soul, I feel like the Holy Ghost is coming down tonight, y'all. There's no way that we would desecrate the house of God, would we? Then why do we do it to the temple of the Holy Ghost? It is a borrowed body. I want you to notice, secondly, we should groan for our graduation. Look in verse number 2. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Now, I wonder if we find ourselves doing this. I I look forward, and I don't understand all the theology. I I, I barely even understand all the language the Bible describes our glorified body as. I don't know how this immortality can put on, uh, or this mortal can put on immortality. I don't understand how this corruptible can put on incorruption. I don't see how this sinner can be glorified. I don't understand any of that. But I look forward to the day when Christ says something or God looks at me and some transformation happens we no longer am I ashamed of this old sinful, carnal, fleshly body. we no longer is it ugly and unappealing. And for some of you folks that have been on this earth for many, many years, you say, I look forward to the day when I can walk right without a limp. I look forward to the day when I won't feel pain. I look forward to the day where I can see further than the end of my nose. I look forward to that day. But do we groan for? Do we earnestly desire to see the beauty which waits us on the other side? I just don't know that we do. There's a misunderstanding that this journey of ours is almost a permanent course of action, but my friend, it is such a temporary thing. Oh, 70 years in the course of eternity is very minuscule. And yet we live in the present with no mind for the future, with no mind for eternal things. And yet we sit here and we take care of this body. We think that this body is what matters. We think that this life is what matters, that this earth is what matters. And I tell you, long, long, long way down the road, you're not even going to be, re- be able to remember what happens on this earth. Oh, it's not all about this earth. There's a misunderstanding of our journey. I want you to notice, secondly, there's a misunderstanding of our joining. Verse number 6, the Bible says this. Therefore we are always confident knowing that whilst we are uh, that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I want you to notice two things about this. I want you to notice, first of all, the certainty of our location. And this is what I meant earlier by there are so many misteachings and people who uh, uh, just decide to come up with something someday, and it's really not true at all. Here, as I read verse 6 and verse 8, it says, "...to be, absent from, or, to be present in the body is to be absent from the Lord." To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The teaching is there is two designated places that you can be. You can either be in the body or you can be in the presence of the Lord. Now you're starting to see what I'm talking about, about misteachings and abuse of this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of people having out-of-body experiences and they're they're, uh, able to see Jesus. You know what I've noticed about that? Most of the time it's somebody who I wouldn't even consider a good Christian. And yet Jesus decided to give them a message that He's not given some of the greatest people and greatest saints and greatest uh, uh, people of God that I've ever met. He chose the person that can't come to church. There is a certainty in our location The Bible does not say to be absent from the body and then that we find ourselves in some type of limbo situation where we we find ourselves getting some new revelation. I'm not trying to speak from inexperience. I'm not trying to speak from opinion. I want to clearly and concisely show you tonight that there is no such thing as an out-of-body revelation from God. I want you to take your Bible, and this is very important that you do this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There is a misunderstanding of the way that we are going to meet up with our Lord. This misunderstanding is that people can experience revelations, and there's even books about it. Man, if, if I, I hope that... I, I, I've even seen some of our church members look at me and say, look at this book, it talks about a little boy or a little, somebody going to meet the Lord. And I want you to understand... I'm happy that you found comfort in that, but that is not biblical at all. You want comfort? Read a psalm. You want to find God's hand? You want to find God's answer in the middle of your valley or in your trial? You open up the book that God wrote and stop worrying about all these books that authors that know nothing about God and don't believe anything like the Bible teaches. You open up the real truth and stop listening to their phony, made-up lies to sell some book somewhere and get in your wallet. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I want you to notice here in verse 8. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come... Don't read over that. Don't glance over that. You have to understand what the Bible is saying. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now what's it talking about? It's talking about when that which is perfect has come. Is that not the context of the passage? When something that is perfect comes, right now it's kind of hard to see. It's like we're looking through a dark glass. I sat in the back seat of Brother Sean Ogby's truck the other day, and you would think the sun is going down everywhere, that it just burn up. He's got like triple-aught buckshot tinted windows, double-paned, double I don't even know. You, we drove by a 7-Eleven, I kid you not. We drove by a 7-Eleven, and I said, why is that 7-Eleven closed? 7-Elevens don't close. But there were no lights on. He said, it's not closed. We pulled in. I looked through the front window. There were lights. It was so dark through the back window, I could not even see that there was lights coming out of the 7-Eleven. You see, the Bible's talking about that. Now we look through a glass just dimly lit, very difficult to see. But when that which is perfect has come, we uh, will see as face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also also, also I am known. What's it talking about? The Bible is teaching clearly here that when God was speaking to His prophets of old in designated short periods of time, small bits of information. So, for instance, God gives Peter a, a, a revelation. God gives Paul a revelation. God gives John revelation. So that they would be able to see something, record it, for us to have that knowledge. And that was how they would get the information from God. God would speak to them directly. They would have some knowledge. But the Bible says those were in part. And would you agree with me? God was, even when the law was given to Moses, was that not just in part what God wanted them to know? So it's in part. The Bible says, when that which is perfect is come. Did you know there's only been two perfect things ever come to this world? One is Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. Peter says there was no guile in his mouth. There was nothing wrong with Christ, no, no imperfection, no flaws, nothing wrong with him at all. But the second perfect thing is the Word of God. You see, there's only been two perfect things to ever come to this world. John chapter 1 tells us it was the living Word. And the Bible tells us in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, the written Word is perfect. Why would we need some dream? Why would we need some vision? If someone tells you someday that Jesus showed to them something that they had not known before, it's saying that this was flawed. They are indirectly making an indictment or an accusation on the Word of God, saying what God had already given was not enough for me, so He gave me something else. Does that sound right? Absolutely not. Take your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes. I'm not trying to make you mad tonight. I'm trying to teach you biblically what the Bible says about this idea of certain locations. You see, you're either with the Lord or you're in your body. There's no in between. You're either with the Lord or you're in your body. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 16, I love this passage. Man, it's a good passage. The Bible says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was able to see there Jesus Christ, something special happened. And and I'm not trying to brag on our senior pastor here. I I will if you want me to, but I'm not trying to at this certain time. But... uh, I remember one day, I've always had trouble understanding exactly what happened that day on that mountain. And he said this in one of his sermons preaching on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, all that took place was what was on the inside showed on the outside. And I said, wow, what a deep theological thought. You see, that day, Jesus Christ was glorified and magnified and exalted for who He truly was. And what was on the inside, which was God. What was on the inside was perfection. When What was on the inside was absolute, utter holiness came out. And Peter had the opportunity to see that. Now he goes on to say, in verse 19, On the heels of saying, Man, I was with Christ on the day I saw God. says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well to, that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture, now notice this, he says of the Scripture, because there's a lot of prophecies that are not of God. There's a lot of false sayings and a lot of teachings that (laughs) were nowhere in God's mind when he created this world and when he gave us this book. It says, no uh, 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 prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You want to talk about Revelation? You want to talk about prophecy that you have no shadow of a doubt is going to come to pass? Look no further than that book. If it's out of that book, I can't promise its validity. If it's out of that book, I can't promise that it's going to be right. If it's not out of this book, I can't promise you that it's worth anything. But if this book in my hand says something... You can take it to the bank. You can look at it all day long. You can trust it. You can, you can take it. My friend, you don't have to worry if it's going to come to pass. The Bible always comes to pass. If it's in this book, it's right. If it's in this book, it's truth. If it's in this book, it is perfect. But not all the time do people agree with this book. And when you start reading things of people having Jesus show up, have you ever noticed it's always they woke up and had a vision? Well, why is that? Because they were still sleeping. You ever been there? How many of you uh, had a dream and you were running from something or you were on a cliff? You ever notice yourself? You're not, you don't look asleep in your dream. You're not sleepwalking in your dream. And they say, oh, I had a vision. No, you had a dream. You ate some bad anchovies, Jack. You ate something that made you think about something that wasn't right. But what they do is they count it as personal experience and they say, well, I was there. I felt it and I know that it was real. Not if it doesn't agree with this book. You ever woke up from a dream and you say, man, that felt like like I was there. That's what it is. It's not real. It's not biblical. It's not of God. In fact, if, if you want to know my opinion on the matter, the Bible says that Satan is transformed into the angel of light. Sometimes Satan can look like you would not think he can look. And just, I want to be very clear on the certainty of your location. You close your eyes, your heart stops beating, your mind stops working, guess where you are? With the Lord. If your heart's still beating and your mind's still working, guess what? You're still here. There's no two other way. There's no other way. That is what the Bible teaches. And as I said earlier, I'm not out to make anybody mad. That would be the last thing. But study your Bible and see if I'm wrong. Because you'll see that I'm not. The certainty of locations, I want you to know, secondly, the confidence in the Lord. Look in verse 8 of our original passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 8 says this. We are confident. Now, that's, uh, uh, this is something when, when a Bible writer says, when we are confident, we are certain. You know he's stating it to, to draw your attention. He says, we are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Man, he sure talks about his salvation experience like he knows what he's talking about. He says, I am confident. I know that I know that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know 110,000% sure, I know that I'm going to wake up in heaven and see Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be nice if every Christian could say that? Did you know that every Christian can Although we have been given so many promises, although the gospel has been made so clear that a child can understand it, Although, although all of those many things, you know how many Christians stumble through this dark world unsure? Unaware that they can absolutely know? Did you know that you can never grow if you don't know? If you're constantly worried about whether or not, if you were to die in a car accident, whether you would wake up in heaven or hell, there's no way you can take the next step in your Christian walk. You know why? Because you're still, you're still trying to worry about the faith in your salvation. There's no way you can take a step to a sanctification if you're still worried about your salvation. He says, I am confident, and I tell you what, willing rather that I would be present with the Lord. How confident are you? When I was soul winning at college, they came up with this creative way to ask a person whether or not they were saved or not. We had a very large amount of people that would go out and knock doors, and we knocked those doors five times a year in two different communities, about 100,000 doors, and we would knock them five times a year. And you say, that's crazy. I know, these people get mad when they see you on their front porch. Yesterday, I was knocking doors, and I knocked on that door. Nobody I rung the doorbell, nobody came to the door. go down past the garage, I'm walking to the next house, and I hear somebody open the door and say, and stay away, and slam the door. I said, wow, you sure were not very nice to Jesus right there. They created this clever way to to, uh, uh, ask whether or not someone was saved. We'd go up to them and we'd say, hi, my name is Andrew Wolfenbarger, I'm from Lancaster Baptist College, and we are taking a poll. They say, oh... So this is not the normal, are you sure you're not today? No, no, no. We're taking a poll for scientific purposes. Say, okay. You'd be surprised how many more people will be willing to participate in a poll than they will be concerned about where they're going to spend eternity. You say, first of all, are you married? Why, yes. Yes, I am. Second of all, and we would ask a series of about six questions. By the end of there, oh, very comfortable. Uh, we'd say, "Do you attend church anywhere?" Down at number seven, the question was stated like this: On a scale from zero to a hundred percent, how sure you'd go? To, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? Oh, and these people that had churches, these people who were active in their churches, you would be utterly amazed to hear how many times I heard. 97, 98%. You know what we'd say then? Well, did you know the Bible tells you you can know for sure how to go to heaven? And we'd crumple that old survey up like it didn't even matter at all. I don't even think we turned them in, man. But when you get on the doorstep of someone, they say, Oh, yes, I'm a, I'm a, 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 a member down at the First Baptist Church of the Laodicean uh, Odyssey. You say, Okay, all right, good how sure on a scale of 0 to 100% are you, you that you go to heaven they say oh, I'm pretty i mean it's high it's 90, 92. it just dropped my jaw to the floor at how many christians didn't have a confidence in their own salvation did you know that the bible says that the entire reason the word of god was written to us 1 john chapter 5 These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Why? Why was the whole Bible written to us? That ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. It is not a wishy-washy, hope-so type of deal. That's not how it works. If you're hoping, you're going to hell, man. I hope that by the end of this sermon, if there is... Just the smallest amount of that, You say, Brother Andrew, this is a Sunday night crowd. I'll tell you what, there's more Sunday night crowd people going to hell than there are Sunday morning people. Because we are so comfortable doubting it. And every time a preacher asks a question, uh, if you uh, felt convicted or if you aren't sure today, and we sit there and we argue within our own soul, no, 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 I remember. No, 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 I was there. That's the same thing I hear at youth camp every single year. Man, I was there, but I just didn't feel saved. What a shame it is when we cannot have confidence in the person that can hold our confidence stronger than anyone. I was watching the Duke University basketball team play North Carolina the other night. Brother Gerald's in the radio room, and I I figured he would get a kick out of this illustration, but... It was a great game, Uh, North Carolina played great. I I won't say anything bad about about them, they should have beat us. Towards the end of the game, I believe Duke University was down about seven or eight points. We had been down as many as ten. I'm talking about with only about three minutes to go in the game, Duke was down not only a little, but quite a lot. North Carolina had absolutely outplayed Duke in the second half. We were winning at halftime by, I believe, about ten points. The fact that North Carolina was ahead of us 10 points means that there had been a 20-point swing in just the second half of basketball. I was doubting, man. I I said, whew, that's pretty rough. Well, thankfully, the Lord prevailed. Kevin will like that part. And Duke extended it into overtime. Duke went on to win the game. And they called the two most valuable players to interview them after the game. Uh, to the podium, and, and or to the broadcaster's desk there, and they said, man, were y'all doubting it a little bit there? I mean, it was looking pretty bad. They said, no, Coach called a timeout, and he looked at us and said, we're going to win this game. And they said, you know what? We don't doubt Coach. He said, when Coach says something, that's it. He said, so you knew you are going to win the game? Yeah, we knew. Coach said it. Did you know there is a Heavenly Father that has given us so much, so many promises that you can take to the bank and that when you're sitting in your pew, I don't care if you've gone to church 30 years, I'm so sad to see the number of people that have been sitting in churches longer than 30 years that are going to be burning in hell for eternity. I don't even want to know the number. But if you do not know, if every time a preacher asks the question you are unsure, you begin to argue within yourself, you, you don't remember exactly, and you, you, you doubt, my friend, you can take it to the bank. You can trust what Coach says. These things have I written unto you that you may know you have eternal life. You don't have to doubt it. Christ died so you could know. Don't doubt it. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, "...and because..." Ye are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are His child, God has sent forth the spirit of His Son into your hearts. And it says, it not only says, oh, you're a child. Oh, you're a child? Don't worry about it. You know what it says? Hey! It cries. It cries like a trumpet. It cries like a preacher. Hey, you're saved. Hey, don't you feel me? Don't you know me? You know. You trusted me. You can have faith in me. And it cries in our heart. And it yearns in our heart. And it burns in our heart. That there is no doubt about it. I have faith in a God who can hold that faith. I can promise. I can guarantee it. There's no doubt about it. God will do exactly what He says. Oh, he cries in your spirit. He yearns. He burns. He tells you that you're a child. And if sometimes you don't feel that spirit will come up in your heart and say, No, you're a child. You know you're a child. I worry about you. I'm concerned for you. Thirdly, I want to show you this. The misunderstanding of our judgment. Now, I've talked about the misunderstanding of our journey and how we tend to put our ideals and our temporary beliefs and uh, all of our, mm, we put every, we invest ourselves in this temporary life when our journey is much longer than this. We've looked at the misunderstandings of our joining, that day when we'll see Christ, that day when we'll meet our Savior. It's either there or here, man, but you can trust that if you're saved, you're going to heaven. I want to thirdly tell you this, there's a misunderstanding in our judgment. Verse 10, pay attention, please. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. I cannot tell you how many times I have heard preachers preach an incorrect doctrine when it comes to what that day at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be like. I've heard time and time again, and I have no doubt about it, you've heard this as well. What if God put all your sins on a screen? What if God shows to everyone and shows everyone all that you've done wrong? How many of y'all have ever heard that? You've heard that preached. And it it is a motivation to scare us, into doing exactly what God wants us to do. But God, that is such a shameful way to preach the gospel. We're not to be motivated out of fear except for a reverential fear of our God. We're not to be terrified of our God. We're to love our God. He loves us. And I hear preachers preach, what if that day God puts all your sins on a screen, and you know what? It just breaks my heart. Because there's a lot of people that have bought into the fact that one day they're going to have to answer for every wrong they've done. They're going to have to answer for every time they said something they shouldn't have said. They're going to have to answer for every time that they hurt somebody or offended somebody or trespassed against God's law. They're going to have to answer for that. The reason people believe that is three reasons. They first of all want you to believe, or we believe, in a lack of accountability to God. You see, people sit here and they hear that, that our sins are going to be broadcast before everybody, and I just don't fully understand why there's so much fear about it happening that day. Because, did you know that God already sees everything? Did you know that God already knows everything? So everything, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, beholding the evil and the good. So God sees everything. David even says, if I make my bed in hell, yea, Lord, your spirit is with me. So it doesn't matter where you go. God is there and God is watching. If you knew something God didn't, that would mean that God is not omniscient. And so God sees everything. So why would that scare you so much if your sins were broadcast? Because in reality, they already are. You are accountable to God. And when you get scared when a preacher preaches that, you know what it's showing? It's showing that you have a lack of accountability to him right now. It's almost like, well, if God's out of sight, he's also out of mind. And I don't want to deal with the day when I have to pay for all that I've done, but, and what a shameful way that is to walk through this life because you are absolutely accountable for everything that you do. You're accountable because He is your God, and He's bought you by the precious blood of Christ, and He already knows everything you're doing, so it doesn't matter if it's on a screen, or it doesn't matter if it's in your bathroom or in your bedroom, God sees it. So it either proves your lack of accountability to God or it shows your desire to please men. Because isn't this the picture that is painted in our mind? There's giant screens broadcast almost like, like heaven is Jerry world. And everybody's seated around this big arena and there's this huge screen up there. And at, whenever God wants to, he just starts flashing your sins. Well, if God already knows it and you agree with that doctrine, why would you be so afraid that everybody else see it? It's because you're more worried about pleasing men than you are pleasing God. I I can't believe that God would show all my failures to everybody else. It doesn't matter if Brother Garrett ever knows anything that I do wrong. I'm not accountable to Garrett. And it doesn't matter if Garrett ever sees my sins on a screen. At the end of the day, it should not concern me whether Garrett knows my dirty secrets. It should not concern me whether Garrett sees me do something wrong. It should break my heart. It should, yea, even break me over that I have trespassed. Not against Garrett. I love you, Garrett, but it doesn't matter if I trespass against you. It matters if I break the law of a holy, loving, compassionate God. It matters if I do something that He said I shouldn't do and I choose to do it. I just don't understand why the screen thing is such a fearful thing. Did you know that the Bible teaches that this judgment is not a sad day? Take your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 15, the Bible says something very... Very amazing here, and I'll be honest with you, until I read this, there was a little bit of intrepidation about the day of judgment for me. There's a difference between our judgment and that of the lost world. You see, there's two judgments. There's that which is called the great white seat throne of judgment. That's when all sinners are going to have to answer, not necessarily for every individual sin that they do. It doesn't matter. It matters that they did one. And because they've trespassed against a loving God, and because they rejected the Son of God, you know what? They're going to have to spend eternity in hell. But there is a judgment for believers. That is the judgment seat of Christ. That is what's in our scripture tonight. And this is the judgment that we are called to. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible says, "...whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God..." God dwelleth in him and he in God. So who is this talking to? Believers. The redeemed of the Lord. The Bible goes on to say, And we have known and believed that God, the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You know the reason we're so intimidated about this? About this screen, illustration, illusion, whatever you want to call it, that preachers have preached for so many years? You know why we're so scared? Because we don't have perfect love. Because we don't understand God's perfect love. It's not so much dependent upon our love for Him. It's that He had a perfect love for us. And that that perfect love and knowing what the Bible says about the perfect love of God, knowing that you can have faith and you can have boldness in the day of judgment. It shows three things. It shows your lack of accountability to God. It shows our desire to please men. I want you to notice this, and this is the saddest of them all to me. It shows our misunderstanding of the work of Christ. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid that one day we'll be called on the carpet to answer for our sins? Because you don't know exactly what Christ did for you. Because you just imagine this man dying on the cross and you can see it in your mind's eye, but you don't understand exactly what he did. It was more than just an act of charity. It was more than just someone admitting or willing to die for you. No, it was so much more than that. The reason we're so afraid that one day we're going to stand before God and answer for our sins is because we don't realize that Christ already did it. We don't understand that all of our sins were placed upon a perfect, loving Savior. You don't understand the depth of His love. It was so much more that he was willing to die. It was that he was willing to be subjected to our sins. It was that our sins were taken off of our shoulders and placed upon the shoulders of someone who had done no wrong. And so no longer do we have to answer for our sins because our sins have already been answered for. Christ already paid the price. He already fought the war. You you never have to answer for them again. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As much as I sin, as much as I'm ugly, as much as I do wrong, the Bible says that I'm no longer considered a sinner. I'm considered the righteousness of God. The Bible says in Isaiah that we are clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Oh, not that someday we're going to have to serve a double jeopardy, so that we're going to have to serve a punishment for something that we've done that Christ has already served for. No, Christ died once and for all, for all mankind's sins. Oh, the reason you can have boldness is not because you deserve that. Not because after you got saved, you cleaned up nicely and you bought a new cologne and you parted your hair on the left side. No. It's that Christ already paid for the sins of all the world. You'll never have to answer for them again. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, And being found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, and i tell you, I've got none to claim, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. Christian, you don't have to doubt. And I'll promise you this, you don't have to be afraid of Christ splitting the eastern sky. You don't have to be scared, for Christ has already taken care of it all. If you don't know, you can know. But if you're scared, the Bible says that His perfect love casts out all doubts and fears. It's such a shame how badly mi- we misunderstand this period of our life. The end. We fear it as if it's something miserable. I like the way my dad says it. Death is graduation. Man, it, it's a promotion. It is getting graduated out of this old wicked world. Man, I watch commercials today. I watched the commercial, and I promise you there was not a straight couple on the commercial. I look at Amy, and I'm about nauseous. I say, what in the world? I hate this old world. It's wicked, it's filthy, it's vile, there's nothing attractive about it. It's just, it's gross, it's grotesque, I can't stand it. That day that I die, for me to live as Christ, and to die is what? What's gain? Oh, it's going to be a good day when I see my Savior. Tomorrow I go to court, and I have to go defend myself for a citation I received in my father's driveway. I'm not exactly sure if I've told you all the story of that. I think I have maybe. But I, I received a, a citation from an officer, a sheriff uh, in my dad's driveway for an unregistered vehicle. And uh, that man came to my window after he wrote me the ticket and he said, you can take this to the Johnson County Precinct, and you can have them remove this. You just have to pay a small fee, and you're done. I said, okay. And I've been familiar with that process. I've known people that have had expired registration. They go in, they take care of it. It's just a small fee, and they get it all taken care of. So I said, all right, that's fine. I think a couple days later, I go in to take care of the uh, issue, and I get my new registration I go back to the back there to appear before Judge, I believe Judge Monk, I believe. I could be wrong on that. I think that's right. And I appear before him, or before his secretary anyway. And I look at her and I said, ma'am, I received a uh, citation for uh, operating a vehicle that was unregistered. She said, okay. She enters some stuff in the computer, you know, for 27 minutes near the... Eh, I might be a little excessive. It didn't even take him that long to give me the ticket. But they, they do this, and they say, she goes, looks at me, and she says, that'll be $150. And I said, I'm sorry, what? So that'll be $150. I said, but ma'am, I, I was almost sure. That, uh, he said at my window that I could just bring this in and have it dismissed for a small $10, $20 fee, and it'd be no big deal. I could have it dismissed, and it would be no problem. She says, that's what usually happens. But she says, you see, the code that was written on your ticket is an undismissible misdemeanor. I was like, what? I mean, I'm a lawbreaker, but I ain't no outlaw. And I said, and she looks at me, she says, would you like to plead not guilty? And I said to her, and I quote, Ma'am, I'm as guilty as a sinner before God, but that don't mean I want to pay no $150 ticket. And she somewhat giggled, and then I witnessed to her she got saved. as glorious day. but <laughs> She said, no, you can fill this paperwork out, and you can go defend yourself in front of a prosecutor. So I, I, dis- I decided to do that. I checked some boxes, signed my name. So tomorrow I, I appear before the prosecutor. Now since this has all happened, I had some red flags raised as to why I'm getting treated differently than many people have gotten treated, why other people get off with a small fee and I'm having to pay a $150 fine. So I started digging. I did some research. The code that was written on my ticket was 502.402. Now you might not know what that means, but I do. Now. I looked it up. Basically what that means is that a vehicle has not been registered and you are operating. it. So I so okay, all right, that makes sense. Until I read 502.404, which is two away. And it says a vehicle with expired registration or that had previously been registered and is not registered now. And so 502.402, the the citation I received, was saying that I had never, ever received my... uh, 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 Thank you. Y'all want to preach for me? You're more than welcome to. Saying that I had never registered my vehicle, ever. And that ticket is undismissible. It is a misdemeanor. And uh, you have to pay the $150 fine or a fine not to exceed $200, as the code reads. But see, the problem is I'm guilty of 502.404, for my registration was in the front window. It was just expired. And so I have called the lieutenant. I've talked to him several times on the phone. The first time I talked to him, I explained my case. I said, sir, I would just like to set up a meeting with the officer that gave me the ticket and discuss it with him. That's what I found out. And he said, yeah, we don't do that. (coughs) I said, okay. Well, let me explain to you everything that's going on, and I would like you to look up my case. He says, okay, I'll get back with you. He calls me back. No, 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 I'm sorry. He's never called me back, actually. I've talked to him four times, and I've had to call him every time. I called him again, and he says, turns out my officer made a mistake. And I said, glory! Thank you. Man alive, I'm so happy it wasn't my fault. He says, my officer made a mistake. That's all he said. He wouldn't go any farther than that. He didn't, you know, elaborate. He just said, my officer made a mistake. And I said, so, and at that time, I didn't know exactly what had happened. I didn't know what had gone wrong. He wouldn't explain it to me. I had to do that research myself. And so I said, okay, well, um, can I get a validated letter from you stating that your officer made a clerical error, and I will present that to my prosecutor when I have to appear. And he says, yeah, we don't do that. Amen, brother. And he also said, I will, however, send an email to the attorney. So that was about three weeks ago. So I've talked to him several times throughout the course of the next three weeks, and as recently as Friday, I said, Sir, I have to appear on Monday. And you've not received any word back from them, and I need something to take to court stating that it was simply a clerical error. He asked for my email as if he was going to. I said, Sir, can you just describe the the situation? He said... We don't usually do that, but let me get your email. I was Friday. I appear tomorrow, and guess what still has not come? An email stating that I was not the one who made a mistake, but rather it was our law enforcement. You know what, I'm going to have to go in that prosecutor's office tomorrow, and I'm going to have to state him my case, and hopefully he rules in my favor. Or else we're taking up a collection next Wednesday night for $150. That's all we have to come up with. That's about 25 cents a person. So we'll we'll get it done. You know, the lieutenant did not help me at all. It was almost like he was not willing to help me. You know what the Bible teaches? If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We are as guilty as a sinner before God. There is no righteousness in us. The Bible says that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God. We have done nothing to deserve his favor. We have done nothing to deserve his promises or his compassion. But the Bible says that we have a friend. We have a savior. We have a helper. Someone who will represent us so that when we stand before him on that day, he'll say... Should I flash your sins on a screen in front of everybody? And and Jesus will look up and say, if you do, it better start at the cross. When my sins are flashed before everybody, it will be a picture of the suffering Savior. It will not be me. It will not be my filthiness, my vile wickedness. No. It will be the fact that a Savior loved me enough to come to this earth and suffer the punishment that I should have suffered and bore the pain that I should have bore. But that day, it will not be a sad day. It will be a day I can look at my Savior and with boldness I will be able to say, Jesus, you are the only reason that I'm able to stand before this God anyway.